Yes, what is good? You are tuned in to Mango Masala. This is Pi Radio's South Asian show. I'm joined here by Halima. What's up, guys? How's everyone? And it is a very special day today. By the way, if you didn't know already, my name's Gerns. And Halima, do you want to announce? Well, yesterday was a special day, I should say. Bangladesh's 50th birthday. Hooray, hooray, I was debating, hooray. should I get like in Stevie Wonder, you know, happy <laughs> birthday. And I was like, you know what? Like, that would have been good. Yeah, we don't want to um, milk it too much. But yeah, Bangladesh's 50, guys. Yeah. And another reason why I didn't want to do happy birthdays because I didn't want to like, make a joke. Make it out too of it. gimmicky, yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, as well, what we're going to be talking about today. Very serious things. Yeah, like yeah. the way in which Bangladesh actually gained its independence. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. and yeah and how that's led to yeah, situation yeah. it's in today like i think you've said before how it's like one of the most populated per area yeah. places in the world yeah. and obviously in britain as well um bangladeshis are usually at the bottom in mm-hmm. regards to um stats regarding it's usually mm-hmm. like black people like, and bangladeshis yeah. yeah so there's a lot to cover here so with that in mind i'm not going to waste any time and by the way, at the risk of sounding like um, Sharon Osbourne, um, educate, educate me. me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you take the full on. Um, this is all right. This is my here. bag, guys. This is my bag. Yeah. Oh, this is what I've been waiting for, man. Um, so, yeah, on that note, do you want to just give us as much as you can a brief overview? I'm going to okay. start with the general history of um, Bangladesh and how it came to actually be recognized be as its own yeah. state yeah um so obviously you have to start from partition um during the british raj india was a but i mean unified in you know air commas unified yeah. india um, and then obviously we had partition um, along religious lines so they did in what is now known as india as like the hindu nation and then um west pakistan which is pakistan today and bangladesh at the time uh, well, first it was called East Bengal, then it was called East Pakistan, um, which were the Muslim majorities. Um, so then from 70, sorry, yeah, 70, 47, from 47 to 71, we were East Bengal and then East Pakistan because, again, the the Muslim majority, oh my God, I'm sorry, guys, I really can't talk today, um, because of the Muslim majority. However, because west pakistan was the administrative center um they had the idea of having like this um pure like very muscular islamic nation and the thing with bangladesh even though we are a muslim majority a lot of our native culture like bengali culture is very intimately tied with like hindu culture because obviously all our ancestors um not that far into history were hindus um and they saw that as like kind of being um filthy and impure so pakistan then started to in in their quest to create a unified islamic nation impose urdu as the national language impose pakistani culture um basically trying to purify bangladeshi culture but obviously we already had our own culture our own language so there were resistance movements the language movement started in 1952 where eight students at the University of Dhaka were killed um, because they were protesting their right to speak Bangla as the native language. Um, and then that started like um, the language movement and um, how like 50 years on, well, sorry, that's more than 50, 52. Mm-hmm. Um, but however many years on now, um, UNESCO actually re- like recognized February the 21st, the day of the shooting as um, Mother Language Day. But what that language movement was part of was um, a larger like 
liberation movement for Bangladesh to become an independent sovereign state because not only were they trying to not only was Pakistan trying to impose language and culture and ideology onto us but they were actually um, very brutal in their regime so like even though we made up the human majority so Bangladesh had a larger population than West Pakistan um, we got barely any of the resources. We didn't get any like political concessions. We had barely any representation in parliament, in government. Um, just just massively mistreated and brutalized um, throughout the entire period of Pakistani imper- imperialism. Um, so then, and especially because so there was a cyclone. Mm-hmm. in 1970 where literally millions of people um Bangladeshi people were um either killed or displaced or maimed um dying of starvation as a result like dying from injuries as a result and West Pakistan barely gave any aid like mm-hmm. they they were literally barely any aid and then there was an election which um so the father of i mean in bangladesh we call him like the father father of the nation sheikh mujibur rahman um he won as i said bangladesh had the human majority right like we had the larger population so we'd actually won the election um however they didn't they didn't give us what we'd won they didn't give us the political seat so then on March the 7th in 1971, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman gave a really impassioned, a really, really famous, like the famous, most famous speech in like Bangladeshi history, um, basically calling the country to arms, saying that we are now going to resist. This is now the time to fight for our freedom. Um, in March 25th, 1971, Pakistan launched Operation Searchlight, which is basically... Um, it was a night of just mass killing. They wiped out like almost all of Bangladesh's intelligentsia, um, academics, professors, political thinkers, politicians, economic economists, basically crippling whoever it was that could form a nation, right? Um, and it was tens of thousands of people that were brutally, brutally murdered. Um, the day after March 26th, Sheikh Mujib, oh, he was also arrested. And then the day after, um, he announced Bangladesh as an independent country. He said, I'm calling it now. Like, we are we are Bangladesh, we're independent. And what that led to was a nine-month bloody war. So, um, so from 26th of March till the 16th of December, there was a war. Um, millions of people were killed. It was one of, I think, like... In, in the in the um, media traction that came following the war, a lot of media outlets were calling it like one of the bloodiest wars. Um, they were they were talking about how Bangladesh was birthed by blood, the bloody birth of a nation. I think was the, the title of the Time um, article, magazine article. Um, yeah, it was it was just it was absolutely it was really really brutal. In the end, we had help from like um, India and and that's and and. It was like guerrilla warfare and help from India, basically, was how we won. Mm-hmm. But on the 16th of December, they Pakistan signed the instrument to surrender mm-hmm. and uh, independent Bangladesh was born. So when we talk about Independence Day, yeah. 26th of March, it was yeah. only nine months. Yeah, so that. Bangladesh is a bit... So we have like three very special dates. We have um, the 21st of February, which is the Language Martyrs Day, um, which marked the start of the liberation movement. And then we have 26th of March, which was the Independence Day, which was when Sheikh Mujib said we're independent, but obviously Pakistan was still resisting at this point. Mm. And then we have 16th of December, which is Victory Day, which was when Pakistan had actually surrendered. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, like, and what you're saying about like the cyclone and everything, it's mm-hmm. um, mad as well because you still see that to this day in terms of I think Bangladesh is one of the worst affected countries in the world by climate natural change. disasters, yeah. climate change, etc. Like I know global warming, they're saying yeah. that because it's a lot of it is below sea level, yeah. so like it's 
It's it's very yeah. flat. Bangladesh is very very flat, and like the thing with Bangladesh is that it's always been known as kind of like the hinterland of the subcontinent. Like it's a very the reason why I know I've spoken before about how Bangladeshis are very very largely marginalized, like in the diasporic heartlands, but also in the context of South Asia itself. Like the Bangladeshi body is 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 very uniquely racialized in the context of South Asia. Um, and it is because like we are kind of a lot darker and and um, basically the reason why Bangladesh is majority Muslim was because we are mostly peasant class. Um, obviously, like you guys, I'm sure a lot of you listening will know how the caste system works in Hinduism if you don't like look it up. But we were mostly like lower caste, the peasant class. Um, and that's basically when the Sufi saints came to Bangladesh. It was that's why masses of Bangladeshis converted because they were lower class in lower caste in the Hindu um, kind of doctrine of things. Um but as a result of that, even though you've now changed religion, you can't kind of shake the shackles of your structural position in something in in a system as rigid as caste, right? Mm-hmm. So um, during the colonial era, obviously we know the Brits basically functioned using divide and conquer, and essentially what they did was so. By the way, um, a little bit of a distinction to make here a lot of people don't understand the difference between like Bengali and Bangladeshi mm. so Bengali is the ethnicity and Bangladeshi is the nationality so if you belong to Bangladesh as a nation if your descent is from Bangladesh as a nation you're Bangladeshi but Bengali is anyone from Bengal and Bengal is made up of Bangladesh and this Indian state of West Bengal basically and West Bengal um, so the Indian state is mostly Hindu majority and Bangladesh is mostly Muslim majority. And the Brits basically had offered a lot of political and educational concessions to Hindu Bengalis. So Indian, what are now known as Indian Bengalis. So they were able to form the middle class, the intelligentsia. They were able to get educated and basically form what we, you know, like the Babu, you know, I don't know if you've heard of that term, but the middle class in India, whereas right. um, the the Muslim Bengalis, so Bangladeshis, uh, largely Bangladeshis, um, were still kind of very peasant class, agricultural workers, rural workers. Um, so that stereotype of Bangladeshis being very low class, being illiterate, uneducated, lowly, um, has had had stuck and also has a massive, massive resonance and reverberation today in the subcontinent. And you can see that in the way that, um, so so Modi had gone to Bangladesh for the fiftieth, yeah. the fiftieth anniversary, and there were people are rioting, man. Yeah. Bangladeshis yeah. are rioting. You know, I posted something on the um, parody of Twitter earlier, and yeah. I was like doing like hashtags do like Bangladesh, and literally I didn't use it because obviously we're trying to remain neutral. Yeah. But the first hashtag that came up was Bangladesh. Bangladesh hates Modi. Hashtag. <laughs> yeah, it's trending. Like there's literal riots. By the way, like Bangladesh is a riot about everything, but like. Like there's an actual there's people are going crazy because Modi obviously like we know he's a fascist and um he's he's come forth and called I mean the 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 status of Bangladeshis in India is, is, I mean, we could do a whole other episode on itself, but as I was mentioning before, the way that Bangladeshis are racialized and treated within the subcontinent, they are seen as like, they've been they've been um, referred to using the language of like parasitism and like vermin and um, illegal, like they're, they're, they're called illegal a lot and they're like actual concentration camps and slums in areas of India um, that are literally dedicated for Bengali immigrants. Um, there are dedicated surveillance campaigns for Bengali there are dedicated programs and um, deportation programs dedicated for Bengalis um, Bangladeshis sorry not Bengalis Bangladeshis um, 
you know what it's mad because like i've thought about this before but hearing about what you're saying about um the people of bangladesh mm. um the, their experiences I, I think growing up i kind of always used to think of it in terms of um racial aggravations mm. um and this is a very like diasporic thing but thinking it's basically us against them in terms mm. of like mm. white against brown yeah when you think about it yeah. it's actually the british who were in charge of india and mm-hmm. various aggravations there mm-hmm. and then it was india against pakistan and i think there's still like a certain power dynamic there yeah. in terms of that yeah. and then it's also like pakistan with bangladesh and that's yeah. one so literally it's, there's it's, so it's so regional like honestly mm. like it is you could localize like these regional tensions in so many different ways but um yeah no historically bangladesh has has been massively marginalized like in the subcontinent mm sure and like you think we're going to come on obviously later in terms of talking about um british um bangladeshis and like how they mm. um feel in terms of how they feel as whether they feel more british bangladeshi mm. etc but i'm just thinking about those that have that may have migrated mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. uk or elsewhere before mm-hmm. um independence do you think those that are still alive today do you think they consider themselves to be Indian, or do you think they consider themselves to be um, East Pakistani? <laughs> like, like, literally, it's what? very techy. Like... It's very, very techy. Like, someone like my grandma, for example, was born as a British subject in mm. India, then had Pakistani citizenship, and now she's Bangladeshi. She, this, this woman has changed. Has has had like four different you know, mm. nationalities in the space of her lifetime. Um, but, the th- and this is the thing about like, this applies to the subcontinent at large, because you know, when I said before a unified India, I said it in like, you know, air brackets, because um, I mean, it was really a myth anyway. How can you unify something as large as South Asia? You can't, it was, mm. a, it was a political endeavor rather than an actual um, cultural, linguistic, ethnic one. Um, and the thing about South Asia is that even though we've always come under the wider umbrella of British India, there have always been regional differences. Like, e- even during, if you pick a random, any random point throughout the era of the British Raj, a Punjabi is would still have resonated with Punjabi culture and a Bangladeshi would still have resonated with Bengali culture, even though they were technically both under the umbrella of British India. You know, so regionalism has has always been more um, formative in forming like culture, I would say, than like uh, political nomenclature. Mm. I think anyone that's listening to this that does maybe doesn't understand in terms of this idea of regionalism. Think about us right here, right? Manchester, Liverpool, the difference in terms of like actual like. And that's not, I don't know if you'd even call that culture, but just the difference in terms of like the norms, the way you speak, mm-hmm. the way that people think, the way that people are. Um, if that's like within like 50 miles or whatever, yeah. then think about what it's like in terms of somewhere as big as if we're going to say South Asia or even original India in terms yeah. of like that. Yeah, like yeah. it was always going to be impossible to kind of yeah. imagine it as this massive unified yeah. thing. I think a lot of that comes from this idea of the british trying to kind of simplify things and saying let's draw this line yeah, and then exactly. like this is our territory therefore yeah. we're going to uni- unionize it yeah exactly yeah. but that's the, that's the reason why you know when pakistan then tried to form a one islamic nation it didn't work because we're not we're not like we have an originary culture and an originary language already like we are distinctly bengali people mm. like i i just i don't understand like, like when you think of like because to be honest i didn't even i 
I think I think we kind of think about partition mm. as kind of like it takes the center. Like I personally didn't even like know for like the majority of my childhood mm. that Bangladesh was even remotely yep. related bro, to India. Bro, like, bro, bro, bro. See, this is the, okay. So you know, I did I, I did a master's in South Asian studies, right? Um, at one of the best universities in the world. So this is the top South Asian course like in the world. Um, and in my course appraisal form, I really had to go in on them because the amount of the, the the institutional neglect of Bangladesh is mental because it's crazy because it's like when you think about partition, like partition, you cannot talk about subcontinental history and politics without talking about partition as a, a huge political watershed, right? Where did partition happen? If we localize the actual geographical material sites wherein partition happened, it happened in Punjab and it happened in Bengal. Like those are the two places where it happened. Those are the two places where the borders were drawn. Now look at how much attention and scholarship is given to the Punjab partition and look at how much is given in comparison to the Bengal partition. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's disgraceful. And I don't think that's even anything to do with my own personal family history and the fact that I my personal family history is like linked to the Punjab side mm-hmm. of things. I don't think that's the reason why I've only ever heard about that. I think it's because, yeah. and I think as well, like studying, um, I actually did a history module at university on um, colonial India in the run up to um, partition, which basically at the, the module kind of started late 1800s and ended mid 90, mid 1900s. Mm-hmm. And again, like it was discussed but it definitely yeah. the amount of academic mm-hmm, texts mm-hmm, that actually mm-hmm. were focusing on yep. this idea of partition happening on the west side like yep. there's definitely a yep. massive difference and as i said like literally i went to do the best south asian studies course mm-hmm. in the world and it was bangladesh was always an afterthought you know mm-hmm. and it's like as i said there's literally only two sites two material sites where partition happened yeah. and one is entirely neglected yeah now we're going to talk a bit about denial over mm. how that actually came about mm-hmm. so again halima over to you um so wait hang on what are the two sections that we were so we wanted to talk a bit about first of all why there's denial over the fact that a genocide actually happened, yeah. happened. then talking about um the fact that in that war um a lot of marginalized communities such right. as the indigenous people um hindus etc th- fought in the war and often overlooked yeah and then talking about in terms of the future what the country can do in order to honor the values of the right. liberation war so genocide denial like every every bangladeshi right now is, is probably like sat, sat home rolling their eyes like um this is by no means the next segment is by no means to sorry guys basically i'm wearing like a um, what's this material call um it's just like a you know like, i'm wearing a tracksuit uh, yeah, shell just... shell tracksuit guys and yeah. uh, and every time like i move you can hear the feedback on the mic so i'm sorry but anyways, as I was saying, this is by no means to like generalize the Pakistani community, but um, this is kind of from my own experience and the experience of a lot of Bangladeshis and also like on a very like political scale as well. Um, the fact that genocide denial is so prevalent uh, amongst like the Pakistani community. Growing up, I grew up in an area that was majority um, Bengali and Pakistanis. Um, and on twitter as well like it's honestly disgusting behavior so like the the liberation war was essentially a genocide like i don't know if i explained this properly in the first segment but the i i kind of talked about how 
Pakistan's objective was to create a unified Islamic nation. And because Bangladesh had um, very, Bangladesh's culture was very intimately linked with Hindu culture, they saw the language and the, and the culture and the people as being very impure and being dirty. And during the war, rape was um, weaponized, basically, um, because the idea was that they were going to, Pakistani soldiers were to impregnate, rape and impregnate um, Bangladeshi women so as to purify the bloodline. Um, and where they weren't doing that, they were systemically killing killing off bangladeshis um not even in a way that people are murdered in a war but with the objective with with, with the view in mind that bangladeshis again as i keep saying are impure they're lowly you know like they're, they're scum basically like that that was the language vermin that was a language that was used a lot um and it was a genocide where millions of people died the figures actually contested because pakistan claimed that it's not it's 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 lower than than it is bangladesh gave a higher figure um but independent kind of like inquiries have put the figure at a few million i think it's maybe like three two to four million two three four million mm-hmm. um which is obviously like horrendous horrendous like everything that happened during the war um and i will go on to talk a little bit about the stories that i've heard and things like that but w- when you deep actually what happened to the bangladeshi people right the the way that some pakistani again i'm not generalizing but the way that some some pakistani members um react and regard this is absolutely abhorrent like yesterday for for example yesterday it was bangladesh's 50th birthday pakistanis there are some pakistanis that still refer to us as east pakistan mm. they were like oh happy birthday to east pakistan we'll get you one day you know it's horrendous it's so horrendous they will they will deny the fact that a, a systemic genocide took place um there are entire kind of like histories and schools of thought coming from that region and 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 that kind of like history making that are still to this day denying that the genocide took place i think as well it's interesting how people like to pick and choose so oh people will happily um decide oh um i'm going to criticize britain for the atrocities that they committed during Mm -hmm. colonial times Mm -hmm. but then they will not acknowledge their own country's wrongdoing so it's like why why, uh, yes Mm -hmm. like what Mm -hmm. britain did and the various atrocities that they committed um, genocides massacres etc need to be recognized and they need to be apologized for because they haven't actually apologized for quite a lot of them but you can't have a go mm-hmm. at, well, I mean, I want to tell people what they can do, but it's it's wrong to have a go mm-hmm. about that and then not recognise, wait, but we did bad stuff as well. Like, how can you be in denial the about thi- something like that? <laughs> yeah. But- and and the thing is, is that it's, it makes things really difficult for Bangladesh because as a nation, what we went through was so traumatic, right? Um, how do you heal? In the aftermath of that, following the bloody birth of the nation, how do you feel? How do you heal? How do you rehabilitate yourself and your people when there is no formal admission of guilt from the perpetrators, right? How how is Bangladesh supposed to um, move on from sexual trauma, you know, genocidal trauma, racial trauma, all of these things when as i said there's no there is no we have no rehabilitative space basically so you talked about um you went on twitter and saw some people saying stuff 
do you, have you ever found like in person you've met people who have kind of yeah man contested like, it there's and this is what i talk about when i talk about like bangladeshis how the way that with the bangladeshis are racialized within the subcontinent and the and the the unique racism that bangladeshis are subjected to because as i said i grew up in an area that was predominantly pakistani and bengali um and we we were fa- we were racism every day bro every day like you guys are dark you guys are black you guys are this you guys are that like you're you're all dirty you're all like illiterate you're all poor um like and and as kids like you hear these things and oh like fish eating as well like um, oh yeah i you know i was listening to an interview the other day and they were talking about obviously about how much fish is used in um your cuisine and they were saying about oh yeah like a lot of um bangladeshi kids like just they they try to avoid it and they avoid it like the plague because they're just they're so um damaged by the bullying you get bullied like, oh, yeah. by fish, I, I, yeah i was just listening to it, i was just like what really? yeah yeah <laughs> like... yeah yeah and you know what you know what's quite sinister about this though like i know it seems like a very benign thing to like bully someone over oh you guys eat fish but i was watching i was just telling carlos before i was watching a documentary yesterday um, about the liberation war and and it was basically like testaments of people who had been through the war and their experiences and there was one wom- one village where all the women were raped and brutalized and um the ones that did survive they were given their accounts of what had happened to them and they were they, kept, they were saying that the pakistani soldiers kept saying to them you fish eating bengalis like they kept referring to them as like fish eating bengalis so like something as as it seems as silly yeah. like as as oh you fish eating but it's 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 such a like locus of like racism like mm. it's just very it's very weird like and you know as, again it comes back to this idea of like obviously we think about for example um like long side right where you yeah. grew up like obviously you've talked about the racism that you faced within mm-hmm. the south overall south mm-hmm. asian community mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was quite populated populated mm-hmm. in that area mm-hmm. meanwhile and um, people at the top looking around great they're bickering amongst each other yeah, 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 yeah obviously yeah, yeah. long site is a quite a insular um, community yeah it's a, a marginalized it's quite yeah. um low economic growth etc yeah. like it's um I'd say it's looked down upon, if I'm being honest. No, no, no it definitely is. It definitely like, is, yeah. yeah. And I think the fact that within that, the actual South Asian community is, like, and again, I'm not yeah. I'm not trying to say that there's an equal length of force coming back from the Bangladeshis, but I'm saying, yeah. like, the fact that people are bickering amongst each other yeah. and the big man's, like, playing puppet, like, oh, like, yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, guys, yeah, like, yeah. keep arguing, like, in society... It's a very sorry state of affairs. Yeah, like, you should... We should should be like unifying to like mm. so we can actually like yeah. contest these causes yeah. and it's just it's sad yeah i mean ultimately what what needs to happen is that pakistan needs to uh, uh, formally apologize like and i know the reason why they won't is and it's the same reason why like britain will never apologize for colonialism because for what follows the admission of guilt reparations yeah you know and and they're not gonna but it just makes things very very difficult you know in terms of how to heal as a nation and how to heal as a people but um mm. I mean, talking about healing. So this is the kind of bit that I wanted to talk about next. And this is something that, um, a topic that is really personal to me um, because this was what my master's research was on. Um, a lot of like my undergrad research was on this as well. Um, so w- during the liberation war, obviously it was a nationwide effort. Um, there are two parts of this that I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about the role of women um, because obviously the way that one of the, the foremost tactics that Bangladesh had was guerrilla warfare and, and it, that was, you know, men going away to fight and things like that. But um, the role of women is often overlooked. Um, so there's a word in, in Bengali called um, birangona, 
and Birongana means war heroine. And Birongana is the title that Sheikh Mujib, the founder of the nation, bestowed to the half a million women that were, um, by the way, trigger warning, like sexual violence. Um, but Birongana is the title that the, the founder of the nation bestowed to the half a million women that were raped and brutalized during the liberation war i i spoke very briefly before about a about the use of rape as a uh, weapon of war and the way that it was um systemically weaponized by the pakistani army again because of the ideas of like purifying the bloodline and and it's very interesting as well this relationship between like gender and nationalism right because women are the fact that women obviously have the womb um and they they are who uh, give birth to you know the next generation so women are seen as vessels of nation the continuous the, the the lineage of the nation is intimately tied to the woman the woman's womb and that's why often like nations are um, gendered as female you know like mother india mother bengal like um th- that that's the reason why so um actually ideologically the woman's body is kind of like the ideological battleground a lot of the times between kind of like nationalistic wars and things like that um and in this instance there was a a very very physical and very visceral kind of manifestation of those the ideology ideology of um woman as nation and the woman's body as nation because as i said the womb the the, the bangladeshi woman's womb was literally weaponized as a as as a weapon of war um um and i don't know it's really it's really messed up it's really messed up as i said like at the minute the the kind of um figure stands at like half a million but again we will never really know um, how many women were subject to that kind of abuse there were um rape camps that were set up that women like pakistani soldiers would literally go and rape entire villages murder the women afterwards um they would kidnap women um from villages from the road anywhere like take them to rape camps brutalize them um in the most inhumane ways possible imaginable um and the thing that is really really difficult is that because in a culture like bangladesh's that is quite conservative um the idea of sexual violence is a it's a techie one because there's a lot of shame surrounding it so where men who fought in the war and the men whose bodies were brutalized and maimed and hurt during the war they came out of the war and they were valorized and they were um you know given hero status and things like that even though sheikh mujib did give the title of birangona there was still a lot of shame like for in the first instance a lot of women wouldn't admit that they they were birangona because for example like you admit it and then what happens is that you're ostracized because people know that you're a birangona that means people know that you have been um you know sexually abused and raped and brutalized and then the whole kind of culture of shame and purity comes into it and then people are like this woman is an impure woman and then the woman is ostracized from from community and there have been kind of widespread efforts um in the aftermath of the war like um rehabilitation centers for women that were raped and things like that like so there have been efforts but they've just not been good enough and a lot of that is tied to as i was saying before bangladesh's um own culture of you know sexual conservativeness and things like that um but i don't know for me personally that's 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 something that is very i always try to 
to keep that in mind when I think about the birth of Bangladesh and I think about what was sacrificed and what was lost and I, and I think a lot about all the women who, who went through what they went through and in the aftermath of it either could not get the recourse to help and were, were, were ostracised. Um, yeah, like... I think um, as well as that, you also wanted to talk a bit about the um, various indigenous people and Hindus yeah, that also played course. a part in the... <clears throat> mm-hmm, um... mm-hmm. So obviously like the war was a lot of bengalis and and this is like this is something that i've been thinking a lot as i've gotten older about how history exists and like multiplicities right often we kind of like get one narrative and we stick that stick with that one narrative but history is very very messy so although on the one hand the liberation war was something that a lot of bangladeshis look at with immense pride and and kind of um we talk about it in 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 the narrative of like sacrifice and 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 these things and you know fighting the good fight there is also a lot of it there is also a very dark you know side of 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 the war and that is the 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 way the experience of minorities now this as i said before is kind of like a very personal subject to me because this is actually what i did my master's thesis on so my master's thesis was on the experience of indigenous people um during the liberation war so just for a bit of background bangladesh is very very ethnically homogenous um is 98 percent bengali ethnicity in bangladesh um and that's two and it's two percent um like indigenous populations basically but two percent of 160 million is still over three million people right so um it's based they're basically known as like indigenous people because they um I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how much I should go into in terms of like indigenous politics, but there are people that basically live in um, hill areas, particularly in the Chittagong hill tracks in the south east, but they're also found in various like in the northwest, in the northeast, like various pockets around Bangladesh. Um, but these people are not basically these people are not ethnically Bengali. They look very, very different. They look almost Southeast Asian. Um, so like there's a lot of racial slurs that are used against them by Bengali people like um, Chinese like mm. you know like they call them Chinese because they look um, as I said Southeast Asian um, it, a majority of them don't have Islam as their you know native religion um, and they don't speak Bangla as their native language so during the liberation war the thing that was difficult was that the entire liberation effort was founded on the basis of Bengali nationalism, right? The the idea that we are Bengali people, we speak Bangla language, and therefore we are going to resist against Pakistani imperialism. But what did that mean for the people whose, as I said, weren't ethnically Bengali and whose mother tongue isn't Bangla, but however they found themselves within the new territory of Bangladesh. They are Bangladeshi, but they're not Bengali. What did that mean for them? right but how, how how are they included within this public national consciousness of bengali nationalism and uh, god it's there's so much to unpack here it's very very mm-hmm. complex but from my own research what i found was that there were two kind of it was a very double-sided thing so there was like an experience that was um a unified experience with the bengali people um and there was an experience that was in contentious with the bengali people because as i said before there's a lot of lot of racism and it's mental isn't it and this is the thing about nationalism nationalism always breeds more nationalism because nationalism is inherently exclusionary we spoke before about how first we were india 
right and then there was regionalism in the sense of like religion so then we were pakistan okay and now there's further ethno-linguistic regionalism so now we want to be bengali like bangladesh and now there's further ethno-linguistic and religious regionalism and now there's distinction between bengali and indigenous people you know like there's always always like distinctions that are going to be made whenever nationalism is the organizing principle but anyways i digress um Yes, yeah, so, so so Bengalis are generally very quite racist and exclu- exclusionary towards um, the indigenous people. And during the Liberation War, um, obviously a lot of indigenous people wanted to fight for Bangladesh because they found themselves within the territory of Bangladesh and the Pakistanis were even more racist towards them than they were towards the Bengalis if you thought that couldn't be possible because at least the Bengalis were Muslim, majority of yeah. them, you know, but these, the indigenous populations, they come from a number of religions, you know, they were Buddhist, they were Hindu, they were Christian, so um, they had their own own indigenous religions as well, so they faced even wider persecution from the Pakistani, um, you know, regime. So then when they wanted to go up in arms and join the Bengali people, there were a lot of instances where, for example, so the, the, the leading party at the time was called the Awami League um, in Bangladesh, that was Sheikh Mujib's party they would go to like training camps right indigenous so they they have their own kind of like local villages and local areas and things like that so they would take up arms they would go to training camps and then the people who were running the training camps would turn them away because they would say you guys are not like ethnically bengali and the whole idea was that if they include non-bengali people in what they believe to be a bengali fight in the post liberation period so when bangladesh is now an independent nation they would also have to include those people in imaginations of this national consciousness which they did not want to do because they were trying to form in the same way that pakistan was trying to form a rigid islamic nation bangladesh was trying to form a rigid bengali nation um so a lot of the, a lot of cases where they were turned away or they were either discriminated against um and what is particularly pertinent as well is in the aftermath of it so little acknowledgement and celebration and recognition is given to the indigenous people that fought in the war you know like they lost their lives too they fought for the country too they were brutalized just the same if not more by the pakistani regime and bangladesh has just entirely marginalized them and this is something that is this also relates to what i was talking about before about the status of the Birangana, right? Where there's this thing in the in post liberation war where um Mukti Juddo is the word for freedom fighter, right? And the freedom fighter, the Mukti Juddo in Bangladesh, has a very esteemed status. A lot of people it's like veterans, I guess, like in this country, people are always like, you know, thank you for your service. It's a very similar thing. Like people are very kind of precious about freedom fighters. Um and you get a lot of like national benefits. So the government provide for you and things like that. A lot of indigenous people and a lot of poor people don't have access to that um, because they are deliberately written out of that narrative. Because in some ways, when a nation is made right, there is a need to valorize that myth of nation making. There is a need to have a kind of polished narrative and rhetoric of how the country was made this was a bengali country made by made for the bengali people by the bengali people the admission that there were minorities that helped and this you know minorities are are spoken specifically about um, indigenous communities but also like hindu people and massively this documentary that i was talking about yet yet that i watched yesterday um it interviewed a lot of poor people um and and they were talking about how they fought for the war and because, you know, they have, Bangladesh is not a 
bureaucratic country so there's no like documentation or anything like that but but because they haven't got any access to like government help they can't they can't prove the fact that they were freedom fighters and now they're just completely marginalized so on that note we're gonna have to wrap things up in terms of this segment play music in a sec but what do you think bangladesh as a country needs to do in order to adequately honor and recognize mm. the um, contributions of the indigenous people um, and and women as well first of all like abolish nationalism um like nationalism is inherently violent borders are inherently violent there is a such thing as pragmatic nationalism which is what bangladesh needed during the liberation war right because we were being attacked um but in the aftermath of it bro it needs to be acknowledged it needs to go like we need to get rid of this idea of Bangladesh is a nation for Bengali people. Um, we need to honor, we need to, first of all, like the Bengali people need to be educated on the sacrifices made by the indigenous people and the experiences of the indigenous people and the and other minorities, you know, such as Hindu people um, during um, the liberation war. Um, and and they need they need they need rehabilitation in the same way that other free and freedom fighters have gotten government help and resources. They also need access to those things. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is history telling as well, you know. We need to tell history the right way, man. Sure. And it's like you can't, again, it's it's just so mad because we criticise um, white-dominated um, institutions such as mm. a- academia in general for not considering different sides of things. But then in some ways we as... Um, people yep. of colour brown yep. people south asians yep. etc we are just as guilty of and that. that's the thing about nationalism guys nationalism is inherently exclusionary is inherently violent because the dominant group the majority group will always marginalize it it, it relies it rests on that marginalization in order or in order for you to form the hegemony there needs to be a counterpart um marginalized community so abolish nationalism uh, you heard it here for, well you probably didn't hear it here first guys but there <laughs> you go this is our final segment on our celebration of 50 years of bangladeshi independence and this final segment is going to focus a bit on what does it actually mean to be bangladeshi do you guys want to hear a funny story though i just thought about this right now um so in 2017 we took our me and my sister we went to bangladesh and we took our white british friend to bangladesh with us why why? she just wanted to go she just wanted to go um and i mean i wouldn't just take anyone to bangladesh with me especially like you know not from south asia or like mm. um but no she's she's all right she's a cool girl so we took her with us and we told her that when she was at immigration she would have to sing the bengali national anthem <laughs> otherwise they're not gonna let her in so this girl and this girl is a massive stress head by the way shout out emma this girl is a massive That's stress so head so like the inter- and, and obviously she was relying on us to teach her right but we just kept being dead shifted like yeah we'll teach you later we'll teach you later and like the entire flight she was like can you teach me now can you teach me now we, t- we taught her like the first two lines and we were like yeah we'll teach you later we'll teach you later <laughs> this girl got to immigration she's now landed she's walked up to immigration she's absolutely cacking her pants she stood there like ready to like uh- ready to sing and she's looking at us expectantly like to give her as if to give her the cues and we were like yeah we're just pranking you and she's like if i wasn't in public right now i would be crying that's that's so mean yeah if that was me i would be feeling (laughs) like honestly it was just guys colonial reparations in it (laughs) 
yeah, <laughs> one, so. one bit at a time. Allow it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know why I just thought of that. But it's, it's the, the, the original question was, what does it mean to be Bangladeshi? I don't know how the, how yeah how I segued into that, but um, what does it mean to be Bangladeshi? In, interesting question. Interesting question. Um, I don't think I don't think again. You know, how I was talking before about like abolishing nationalism, like. Bro, you can be a Bangladeshi however you want to be Bangladeshi. The I spoke before a little bit about um the treatment of indigenous people. They are actually very I spoke specifically in the context of the war. Yeah, so I spoke I spoke um before about um the obviously in a very specific context of the war. Um about the the role of the indigenous people and how they were precluded from this valorized myth of nation making and obviously it then that that is like the historical contingency and it has then obviously had a deeper and wider political implication once the new nation state was formed where because they were they were um uh, kind of neglected um from the process of nation making that is to say the liberation war uh, and because they kind of live within the hinterland of bangladesh as i said before um in the hill tracks in the south east specifically um there are a lot of kind of racist rhetorics and narratives surrounding indigenous people and the fact that they are not actually bangladeshi and therefore they should not be um legible for like kind of state benefits and um like state protections in the same way there's a lot of discussions regarding the nature of citizenship which again is very very techy and um ultimately unacceptable to be honest it's something that bangladesh the government need to be held accountable for um to be honest the wider public as well because as i said the racism towards indigenous people is very very rife in the country but um when we're talking about what it means to be bangladeshi that's the only thing that i would talk about in actually it's a very interesting the, the nature of what what how ideas and notions of citizenship are formed is very 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 interesting because for example something like bangladesh so a place like bangladesh that for its liberation and it's independent on the basis of like ethno-linguistic freedom we literally went through a genocide because we refused to relinquish our language that same nation state is now marginalizing regional languages and indigenous languages when i did my um field work in bangladesh last year the year before um, there was one story that I kind of um, recorded that was it was really heartbreaking and it was an indigenous person talking about how um, when they were in school and they were given their state exams they had to fill in a form talking about what basically stating what their mother tongue was and um, they were forced to put Bangla so they put Chakma which is um, you know one of the, the largest indigenous um, languages and one of the largest in um, ethno-linguistic groups in Bangladesh um, and the head teacher of the school came to him and said why have you put that down he said well that's my other tongue and he said no change it to Bangla so the same thing essentially that Pakistan was doing to Bangladesh the state of Bangladesh is now doing to indigenous people which again reiterates my point about how nationalism only ever breeds further nationalism and it needs to be abolished um, but I think the the section that we were supposed to talk about here that was a bit of a tangent was about um British Bangladeshis and the kind of history of British Bangladeshis. So, so um, a bit of a context, guys. I think it's ninety something percent of Bangladesh British Bangladeshis are actually Sileti. So Sileti is a, you know, again, it's like it's like further regionalism. So it's like um, 
you know how like here we have like Mancuni and Oliver Pudley and like that. So Sileti is an area in the northeast, um, and we have our own language. Like Sileti is his own language. Um, we don't speak Bangla. It's very, it's it's, it's almost mutually intelligible with Bangla, but it is its own distinct language. So ninety something percent of British Bangladesh is actually Sileti. My own family were Sileti, and growing up, I thought that all Bengalis were Sileti because that's all I ever saw in this country. Mm. But the um, the history of that is just because of um. Uh, Lascars are basically shipmen. So during the colonial era, um, obviously a lot of trade and export between kind of colonial India, specifically Bengal and the UK, um, there were higher Sileti because where um, um, we have ports, right? So they would hire like Sileti Lascars, and then sometimes they would kind of like sneakily get off in London in Spitterfields, you know, by the docks, um, and like not get back on the boats, and they kind of like form their own communities. And then obviously chain migration in the post-war um, period and the post-independence um, period, specifically, um, and so that's that's how a lot of um, Sileti Bangladesh like Bengalis um, settled in the UK, and we tend to. Um, actually be involved were very very instrumental in like the um, Indian cuisine industry like mm. I think again the figure is either 94% or 97% of Indian um, restaurants are actually Bangladeshi owned so like yeah. well, when I say British Bangladeshi it's almost interchangeable with Sileti because I said it's 90 something percent that are Sileti um, but you know I remember actually like um I, when I met one of my friends for the first time um, and I was kind of like talking to him a lot about like Bangladeshi culture and people and I was saying how like Bangladesh has been very instrumental in shaping like British culture, right? Um, and he was like, oh, in what way? Like what, like, and he was thinking of like art and things like that. But actually Bangladeshis, um, British Bangladeshis have been very, very formative in a lot of labor movements in the UK, specifically anti-racist um, and anti-fascist movements in the 70s. Um, so as I said, because of the way that um, Bengali people created the chain of migration, which was, um, I mentioned like through the Spitterfield docks in East London. So Tower Hamlets is actually the place where, and like Brick Lane specifically, mm. um, is a place where, it's, it's the largest British Bangladeshi population basically in, in this country. Um, and they have a very, very kind of rich and very um, politically active history over there because as I said, the Bangladeshi migration is is in some ways very different to other South Asian migration because, for example, um, the Indian diaspora in the UK, 50% of the Indian diaspora are Gujarati and a lot of them came from wealth, right? So this really speaks to roots of migration and how people migrate and what people migrate from and what people where people migrate migrate to. And a lot of the Sinatis came from poverty to poverty, right? Um, and that really informed the political subjectivities and positionalities of Bangladeshi people in the UK because we came to this country and um, we were living in poverty largely, to be honest with you, um, working in sweatshops in the UK. Um, there was a whole squatters movement. And that is why Bangladesh and, and, and facing a lot of racist persecution. So um, I can't really say the word here, like the P word. Yeah. Um. P word bashing. The the P word comes from the practice of P word bashing, right? In in the um, in the sixties and seventies, and um, 
Bangladeshis were, I mean, or as all South Asians, you know, like I'm speaking specifically about the Bangladesh community, um, were very active in the resistance movements against that, specifically following the death of um, a young Bangladeshi factory worker called Altab Ali in East London. He was brutally murdered by like um, Nazis, basically. Um, and then it, it caused a, a massive, massive movement of anti-racist resistance, not just... Um, obviously Bengali people were leading it but they were specifically collaborating with black communities um, which is something that to be honest it annoys me that this is a part of our history that Bengali people forget when they want to do up anti-blackness like it's really embarrassing but when we needed help and we were organizing against the you know racist it was a black community that were marching alongside us and, and were doing up activism alongside us and, and when they need help we're just perpetuating the same old white supremacy the side note but still get a grip Bengalis anyways um yeah so Bengalis were very very instrumental in in leading those movements um they were very very instrumental in labor unions trade unions because they were again Bangladesh is really famous for textiles so a lot of textiles workers would come from Bangladesh to this country they were working in factories um really really terrible conditions so they were very very um played a formative role in that they play they played a very formative role in um housing unions and housing rights as well because of the Bangladeshi squatters movements um in the 70s so and Bangladesh is actually I think were the largest minor my were the largest ethnic minority with an almost 100% labor vote mm. so very very left-wing people I, I mean the founding constitution of Bangladesh is a socialist constitution by the way so yeah makes sense now yeah. <laughs> why i'm so staunchly <laughs> left-wing yeah but you spoke briefly before about um brick lane obviously being mm-hmm. like a focal point in terms of um bangladeshi migration yeah um obviously in more recent times um this has or especially like the past few years i believe um gentrification it, yeah. yeah and it's I, 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 i've forgotten what it is exactly but there is something the truman brewery yeah they're literally yeah. it's it's trying yeah. so, to eradicate yeah yeah i mean so brick lane itself has a very very rich history like beyond british bangladeshi um, history because it was obviously a stronghold for the jewish community and then like bangladeshis came over and um i don't know for those who have not been to brick lane like it's not even england like it's really not the street sign is literally written in bagla like mm. <laughs> um you walk down and it feels well actually like every time i go now because um, I, I go anytime i'm in london and i have a lot of family in the east end as well so naturally um and every time i go the change is palpable you know um and it's a very, very important place to British Bangladeshis because it's where it's the heart of the British Bangladesh community, essentially. You know, it's where a lot of businesses were built. A lot of people kind of um, built themselves up. A lot of livelihoods are surround that area. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, it's the age old story of gentrification. Every um, If you don't know, like, go educate yourself on it. But um, yeah, it is being gentrified now and there are. Um, a lot of Bangladeshi businesses. I mean, the curry industry itself is is kind of dying out now. But um, a lot of Bangladeshi business owners are being pushed out. Um, increased rent prices. Um, because uh, you know other white businesses are moving in and taking over, and the market and the demographic is changing. And it is, <sighs> guys. Uh, there's a lot of like um petitions and and pushbacks as as well to this um. Because I think there's the Truman Brewery that are 
um that that that's that, that's kind of like a a stronghold in in brick lane and right. and um there have been some recent campaigns trying to push back against that so anytime you see anything to do with that or you know like you should go and um educate yourself on that yourself like do try and sign whatever petitions you can send whatever emails you can because it's a very repressing thing right now mm. yeah i think as well like when you think about like we're all ethnic minorities yeah. it, but like thinking as well just throughout this episode the amount that you've described in terms of the in terms of like levels and in terms of the so many ways in which bangladeshi people have been oppressed or yeah. have been held yeah. down peasantry yeah. lower class um mm-hmm. income etc two liberation fights an entire yeah. two genocides right like yeah and like the fact that they're for british bangladeshis they're one thing yeah that they have like yeah as like yeah theirs, yeah almost. sense of community yeah. and place and identity and belonging is now it's erasure that's what it is it's essentially erasure and erasure is violent you know like mm. it, it was the bangladeshi community community that made brick lane to be what it is today it's the bangladeshi community that brought in commerce and business and gave it culture the way that we see brick lane to be today and it's this kind of exotic thing that um you know specifically white brits are attracted to um and unfortunately they don't know how to interact with 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 that with that thing with that cultural artifact responsibly mm. and their way of interacting is to displace and to dispossess right yeah and erase or like think oh this is interesting let me start my own thing that is like this right, in exactly, exactly. In exactly the same place yeah but uh, rent but drive up rent prices yeah. or like whatever else or that the actual people who don't have anywhere else to go are pushed out and displaced and dispossessed it's yeah guys take a stand against this wherever you see it you know probably coming to the end of our discussion now so i just want to end it by asking you halima like what does it mean to you to be British Bangladeshi? Um, everyone that knows me knows that like people always talk about how much I love Bangladesh and like how I'm one of the most, like proudest Bengalis that they know. Like anyone who will listen, I will try. Guys, I literally walk around with a map of Bangladesh <laughs> on my neck. Um, me personally, bro, I love being Bengali, man. Like that's my ish, you know, like. <laughs> I I, th- I love being Bengali. I love coming from Bangladesh. I think it's a beautiful culture, beautiful people. And honestly, I think resilience is like embedded into our people. I think resilience is embedded into our culture. If you think about what Bangladesh has been through, constantly persecuted, constantly marginalized, constantly been the hinterland of the subcontinent. We've been through massive unimaginable colonial violence. We've been through two n- numerous famines. We've been through genocide at the hands of churchill we've been through genocide at the hands of the pakistani government we've never had any reparations of any sort um and and yet look where we are you know we are like inherently revolutionary people bangladesh the founding of bangladesh was steeped in a socialist and abolitionist worldview essentially that's what it is 50 years later i know the meaning has gotten lost a lot and we have been victim to neoliberalism and 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 all of these things but like essentially the thing that i love about being bengali is the revolutionary spirit and the organizing spirit of the bangladeshi people and it is the spirit that i i me personally i gain sustenance from that i gain inspiration from and it's the spirit that i appeal to when i ask bengali people to do better right especially especially with regard 
to minorities in the in the um in the in the nation in the Bangladeshi nation especially with regard to you know women and dalits you know lower caste people and hindus and and indigenous people in bangladesh like think about what what you know you know one thing yeah um i did an interview when i was doing my field work with a with a freedom fighter and i don't know why his story because this is something that i heard here a lot but for, but specifically his story um really resonated with me and really touched a nerve with me because he was talking about how when they were fighting in the war he was 17 and he was talking about he, he left home he ran away from home to join the war his parents didn't want him to but he ran away because he, he was so impassioned by the message of the war and he was talking about how everybody he was fighting they were these were ordinary people by the way bangladesh had very very little formal and organized um uh, military campaign it was mostly as i said guerrilla warfare um he was talking about the ideal that bangladesh was gonna be a, a better nation like and 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 it's so hard to imagine because like we went there and we see bangladesh for what it is now which is it's doing well but ultimately there's a lot to work on right um and he was talking about how there was a genuine belief that that they were going to come out of the war and bangladesh was going to be an equal and just and fair place for everyone right um and I and I implore the Bangladeshi people to remember that and mm. to hold on to that and to honor that spirit and specifically the British Bangladeshi people we have fought injustice throughout our entire history you know like we have been the victims and 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 in in this context now especially when I when I spoke before about like anti-blackness and other forms of discrimination Guys, come on, man. We've been leading revolutions. We also need to be up in arms this time round as well. And uh, when I say up in arms, guys, I mean like, yeah. I mean figuratively, yeah, you know, fig- I mean leading, I mean leading, <laughs> I mean leading social justice justice movements, please. I'm yeah. not... Inside to Don't come riot. and get me. Don't come and get me, Pretty Patel, please. <laughs> no, she's too busy. Just joking. Eye. Oh, she's, she's busy, busy getting, getting her eyebrows done. Yeah. <laughs> and buying panties from Primark. <laughs> and now we're going to hear from DJ Chande. I think that maybe this was something, um, a career or like, you know, something you wanted to pursue, basically. Mm, yeah. Um, so music for me, I think, kind of came late in the game um i wasn't it wasn't like i learned instruments i think the only instrument i did learn was weirdly violin uh for a bit i wasn't any good at it but yeah um it kind of came i think more towards the end of like secondary school and just kind of like discovering you know electronic music pretty much um and then i think at some point it was actually weirdly funnily enough like it was but it like some of it was good and then it got pretty edm like kind of whack but it was that was like for me i think just the energy of it and like also seeing you know just seeing like djs and yeah, like, really EDM, like, like dance music can be very like experiential so it was it yeah like it it, it it that's that's a good that's a good that's a good yeah point actually i think i think it i think it puts a lot of focus on on yeah on the energy and like encompassing you um and you know fil- filtered through that was some stuff that i think you know now is still pretty legitimate but anyway like eventually i i kind of managed to hustle uh my parents for like a, a controller for christmas um I... i've been like doing lots of virtual dj when was, this? when was this in uni or no this was this was like so this was oh my god I, i'm terrible with maths so 
I, st I started properly DJing, I think, in sixth form, which would have been like 2012. Yeah, so like 20, 2012 to like 13 was when I was first starting to learn how to DJ. Yeah, so it's been a while. It's, it's been like that was, I've kind of been at it for a while. Being like a South Asian DJ now, do you feel that people have a certain perception about what kind of music? you're going to play or mm. what kind of music um you're into um you know those sorts of things like do you have to sort of fight these perceptions about what kind of music mm. it's play? it's a really interesting question because i think i wasn't even really that conscious of my own kind of south asianness for a really long time or like was able to really occupy it um and so, you know, like a lot of the spaces that I was in were purely like, you know, there was, it was mainly white, you know, and I like, I was playing maybe some of these, some of these student nights, uh, playing student disco nights. And I think I started to, around the time, maybe like 2016, 2017, it was when, you know, music that from say like Nigerian funk was getting, you know, was having, like, we were all kind of digging into that. We were digging into stuff from the African continent, stuff from even the Middle East. And then I started to, and so I, I you know, I really enjoyed playing that stuff, mm. but then, you know, I started to then dig into, you know, finding stuff like, I don't know, like Nazi Hassan, boom, boom. And I was like, oh, this could totally go down. Yeah. And, and to be honest, like, I think it was, it was a lot more like, I didn't even, I, I don't think I ever really felt like much uh, expectation or like people like, oh, you know, he's, he's brown, he's going to play this. Right. Um, from from like people there but i almost i felt like I, I i think what i've felt in the last few years is realizing that like maybe just over the over time to like you know ignore that part of myself and then that's and it was like a lot more of a deeper like kind of uh thing in in our culture and our society um but funnily enough actually there, I, I do now remember times where maybe so, another south asian person would come up with like at a night that was was not this, but he was like, "Oh, have you got any pangra?" <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you know, it's funny. It's like I, I remember back then. I like I kind of laughed. I was like shrugged off. I said, "No, no, no." But now looking back, and now where I am, and now with everything that's going on with daytimes and stuff, yeah, I'm like, like I wish I did have some pangra that back then, right, um, right, to drop on them. All I had was, I don't know, Steve Monight or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and funk. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I wonder how that's going to change. I don't know, like. I'm sure it's different for a lot of people um yeah. and it and especially because i'm i'm a dude you know I also, I also feel like a lot of my uh interactions with race are probably not the same of like you know women yeah. uh who are south asian because you know i hear a lot of that like they get given it a lot more than than maybe i would um right. but yeah it's a complicated one isn't it yeah it is so obviously yeah. daytimers is a community you know showcasing south asian talent it's not restricted to music right it can be sort of it's more broad but um and it's garnered quite a quite a bit of a following in in the past year i'd say um and everybody's sort of talking about it and you're getting quite like good guests on it as well mm -hmm. um so how did you get involved in that especially being in manchester based um and how did you get involved in this community yeah um it's pretty crazy to be honest to think how what's happened but it's it's not surprising uh i got involved with it um so i think it was basically just instagram so it was, it was co-founded by 
Sherwin and Provat, who, you know, both incredible producers. And they decided, you know, that they wanted to start something like, like what it was. I think it was definitely rooted in music. And I think now has since the scope has widened. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was because I tagged um, another great uh, Manchester South Asian uh, artist, uh, Jamal Monarch, on, I think it was like Nabia Iqbal was like calling out for South Asian um, artists to play on a show. And mm-hmm. then I think, so Provat is, is we've, <laughs> it's kind of, become known as like the king of like sliding in the dms but not in a creepy way just like <laughs> just like he's he's shouted and like collected loads of people and found loads of pe- loads of like the crew uh i was apparently the first person who you know they had a call and so we, he booked he said like let's have a call this is what i want to do and it's weird because i was at the time thinking about and talking about doing like you know like kind of covering this stuff um and i'd been doing like a fair few dj sets before the pandemic that kind of were really focused on this um so we had a call and then um you know i was like quite excited because it sounded he sounded like he was on the same page about doing this for the right reasons and all that kind of stuff and yeah supposedly i I was the first other person out of them two when it started becoming a collective um but then yeah i was like i shouted gracie t and then we've got young sing obviously uh um and oh my god i'm I'm drawing mind blank but there's a whole army of us now um (laughs) and yeah it's it's really sick uh and that's how i got involved and i think since then i'm more um we 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 talked about doing like radio stuff and then we started doing the podcast um and then that's kind of like been the main thing i've been working on with uh with the crew so another thing that i wanted to talk about is basically you being based in manchester now um Mm -hmm. so obviously you were there for university and then you kind of stayed there um and you're from london originally right yeah um so yeah how have you found it found it kind of moving outside of london and manchester is a really like good city and it's growing Mm. as well so i can definitely see the appeal of saying that um but yeah like how was your divorce from London? Like, are you are you missing it? Oh no, happy days, happy days. Because <laughs> it's weird. I grew up there, and I was I spent maybe some like summers there, in between uni and like tried to like build a connection with it. Just didn't really have, didn't really have like the crew or friendship, and like it just took ages to get anywhere, and like just maybe making it home back to like northwest london and like on like from like bloody peckham and like yeah um i've like i've been stuck at like wembley central and just like oh crap i gotta wait for the bus um <laughs> so that's not fun but there's just a lot that manchester really kind of like it felt like home for the first time and obviously yeah, I'd, I'd moved you know finally moved to dubai um that was whatever I, yeah i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't really call that place home and I, yeah i don't really yeah dubai is definitely a weird place uh it's a weird it's a weird place it's 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 a it's a it's a morally abhorrent place to be honest i've I've, I've read and learned i'm i'm willing to say that like but i mean it also i also you know actually i also got to connect with uh, a side of the world and like you know i'm i really uh got to learn to love like arabic culture as as in general like via that and also like meet loads of people from other parts of the world um and there's obviously like a you know kind of a big south asian uh community there as well um 
but yeah so i think i'd always been used to like moving places and not really having a home um but i think came back to manchester i mean came to manchester study and even that took a while but i think eventually i found a group of like-minded people and uh, the years following my university following my university um just trying to like you know trying to find a job you know make make my way and it was putting on nights and all that kind of thing and after like a year of that or whatever i realized i was like pretty ingrained with the city and like felt felt like my place like i go about and just like bump into a bunch of people are like like it is mostly pretty friendly and you know there's just like a big mix and it's just so small and fun and i don't want to make it sound too great because i'm also wary that like a lot of people are like great i'm going to go buy some property now in manchester let's <laughs> yeah price price the locals out but yeah, um no, being from the north, i'm just like no <laughs> and london is the only place for me in the uk but uh, you I should have... you should no no i i i'd I'd recommend I'd recommend you come you come visit and uh, and check it out um because yeah I I no I really love it here I feel I feel more at home here than I do there uh in London for some reason um it's and like, just I, you a know, big city thing you know like I just like some yeah I hear you I'm I'm no I know I'm I'm a city boy too uh but you can get you can get everything in Manchester I went for a cycle the other day and like for like maybe like 20 40 minutes with my with my housemate and like with there's like countryside but then if i go 40 minutes the other way you're in like central town tall buildings yeah. some bits some bits they film to put like film movies like uh i don't know like some spider-man spin-off to make it look like new york so like you get the new yorky vibes it's i i quite like it um but yeah and also it's got a great scene i think fundamentally that is what is keeping me here um Man- I think Manchester's keeping me in the UK, to be honest. <laughs> like, like it's the it's it's always such a shame. I'm like, ah, uh, it is attached to this country, which has, you know, it's it's been through a few few years, hasn't it? Yes, and you'll be able to find the full interview with DJ Chandy on our socials at a later date. But until next week, this has been Mango Masala. My name's Gerns, and we're gonna finish with another Bengali artist to celebrate 50 years of bangladesh this is anit khan with big facts and we'll see you next week